Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Bloomington is home to countless people who give their time and energy to organizations that they feel will make the world a better place. We've hosted many such people on Big Talk. Today, let's go to the archives for a few snippets of conversation with people working to bring change in South Central Indiana. First up, Tracy Hutchings Getz and Cassandra Botts appeared on last week's show. Tracy is the Bloomington organizer for Hoosier Action, a member-driven nonprofit working to improve the quality of the air and water as well as health care delivery in this half of the state. Tracy talked about a pair of environmental crises in Franklin and Martinsville. This chat led to the similarity between Hoosier Action and the Indiana Recovery Alliance, as explained by its executive director, Cass Botts. There are multiple different sites. They are united by the fact that both are caused by corporations. Yeah. In Franklin, there was a manufacturer of uh, electronics and cables that had apparently dumped some stuff and is now tainting the soil. Correct. I believe that it is also in the air and water yeah, as yeah. well, as well as in Martinsville, um, which is why they are organizing right now, leading into the legislative session, to advocate for a bill which would notify tenants um, if their home, if their rental property is on a toxic site. Um, because right now in Indiana, you could be renting a home that is making you sick and not know it. Back, this is August 2017, Hoosier Action sponsored a Confronting White Supremacy in Indiana rally at uh, Bloomington's First United Methodist Church. So that's a, boy, the range of problems that you have to cover. You had about 200 people in attendance. Did you go to that? I was there, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that is actually out of that meeting. Um, the uh, campus action chapter emerged, actually. Ah. Um, so, yes, I was there. Um, what I will say is, um, what all of these events are united by is a vision that we have that everyday Hoosiers, the people who are directly affected and have lived experience, are the people who should be making the decisions about their own lives. Yeah. So that is the kind of um, underlying vision that um, we bring into everything that we do. Right. Right now, we're particularly focused on healthcare, um, and I view um, access um, to recovery as a part of healthcare for Hoosiers. We're focused on that because it's a huge part of everyone's lives. At that meeting, as a matter of fact, the executive director and founder of Hoosier Action talked about Hoosier Action's, quote, invitational organizing strategy. Is that what you've been talking about all the while? Yeah, that's correct. So by invitational organizing strategy, we mean that we invite Hoosiers into a different vision for their lives and their state. Mm -hmm. And that vision can be like, hey, (laughs) come with us to this meeting. It can be a kind of short-term, smaller invitation or a larger one. So... What I know and I've experienced and what undergirds this work for me is the knowledge that too many people, myself included, my neighbors included, are living lives much harder than they have to be here in Indiana. And for many people, 
that creates a deep sense of shame and inadequacy. Right. And what we do is invite people in a different, into a different vision and to a different way of understanding their own pain. And that vision is rooted in abundance rather than scarcity. Huh. So the idea that we actually live in a state where there is enough for all of us, where none of us have to go hungry or have to ration our insulin because healthcare is too expensive, where none of us have to worry about getting the care we need just because we're dealing with substance use disorder. And so that's what we do um, one-on-one or in big meetings. Cass Botts of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, she talks about outreach, essentially. They have to go out and say, hey, come on in. Does that happen with the Indiana Recovery Alliance? Or would it work with the Indiana Recovery Alliance? Yeah, so the thing that makes us really unique is that we are run by people who use drugs and people with lived experience with chaotic drug use. And so we actually, you know, attract people who experienced that in their own lives, experienced not having services, not having access to the things that they needed. And they say, oh, we are welcome and actually wanted by your organization. That's amazing. And so what we do is invite people to educate themselves and empower themselves to take care of their own needs in their communities. And you know, Monroe County has this service. Um, Only nine Indiana counties have these services. There are 92 counties in Indiana some of which have higher incidences of infectious disease or overdose or some of these issues that we are attempting to address. And so what we really want to do is just be able to educate people who use drugs to empower themselves to keep themselves safe and and happy and healthy as well. And so that's where I think that that nothing about us without us that Tracy has mentioned, whose action is all about as well, is just a statement that, you know, we can empower ourselves to take care of ourselves. Dr. Rob Stone joined us in August. He's the director and founder of Medicare for All Indiana. He's on the board of advisors for Physicians for a National Health Plan. He spent nearly 30 years practicing emergency medicine at Bloomington Hospital. He calls himself a passionate advocate for universal health care. Rob was a friend of Dr. Quentin Young, Martin Luther King Jr.'s personal physician and an early advocate for universal health care. Doing so much, trying to uh, tear down uh, to an extent uh, some systems that really don't serve us well. Mm -hmm. How near are we to universal health care? Okay, great question, which I can only say relatively. I don't know how we're going to get from where we are now to where I think we need to be. But the fact that, for instance, in the recent Democratic um, presidential primary debates, every candidate is saying something about universal health care, and we often speak of it as Medicare for all, meaning that we've got a program now, Medicare, that's been around since 1965. And apparently it works. And it works really well. And it is a universal program once you turn 65. It doesn't matter you know, what your pre-existing conditions are. You are covered by Medicare at age 65. And there's some other 
groups beyond age 65, like re- kidney dialysis, that are covered by Medicare. But Medicare covers everybody age 65. It's been in place for over 50 years. Um, it's a popular program. We're already taking care of the sickest most complicated, most expensive patients. We're already doing it and we're doing it well. And we look around the world and we see in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, we see other, Japan, countries that are covering everybody, not just at age 65 on, but all the way through life. So we know it can be done. We know these other countries spend less than we do. I mean, I could go on and on, but I'll try to reel myself in, in terms of why it's a good idea to cover everybody, both economically and morally. Um, And so now people are talking about it. Yes, Medicare for all, Medicare at birth rather than age 65, and it's being talked about more than ever. So in that sense, there's been tremendous progress. This idea is gone from being a totally fringe idea to being an idea that is talked about, although labeled as still some kind of far left, and yeah. maybe this word socialist comes into play. Big government, yeah. Big government. Um, and um, so, you know, it's so I don't know how this is going to play out, but we are closer than we've ever been. I am up. I actually see that it's inevitable because, based on the international data, we know this is the, the. It's not only the right thing to do; it's the only affordable way to take care of people and have a healthy population who are good workers and healthy participants in democracy. Uh, I mean, health is important to everything. So I, I, it's inevitable. We're going to get there. It's just a question of how and when and. And then what's the strategy to really get there? And that's where it gets really complicated. Yeah, but wait a minute. Let me reel you in over okay. here. Okay. All right. Just because Just try to reel me in. Just because <laughs> something makes sense doesn't mean it's going to happen. Exactly. You know as well as I do that crazy things are enacted. Yep. Or not enacted. Yep. Yep. Do, do you ever feel pessimistic about it? Uh, Quentin Young uh once told me uh, uh, what he wanted on his grave was uh, the inscription on his grave to be, here lies a dangerous optimist. <laughs> I don't know the if that... The worst kind of optimist. Yeah. <laughs> he ended up getting buried in California, and I don't know what's on his grave, but that's what he told me he wanted his, his inscription, inscription to be. So, um, yeah, I get discouraged, yeah. uh, but, you know... It's a good thing to work for. Yeah. And uh, I am passionate about it. I love working. I love uh, talking to people. I love meeting people all over the country who are just amazing people doing this work. Just like Quentin, meeting Quentin Young, that was a thrill to my heart and my bones to, to meet him and actually become a friend of his. I assume you've made a living mm-hmm. throughout your life. I assume you've got a dollar or two in the bank. Yeah, I've done well. Okay, under universal health care, will doctors be able to make a living? Well, I think there's no question about that. We were joined in November 2018 by Deborah Morrow, Executive Director of Middleway House, a safe haven for women and men who've experienced domestic violence. Middleway House also provides housing, daycare, job training, and other services needed for people to re-enter society and the workforce. 
Morrow herself came to Middleway House as a client. Over the years, she developed skills and the confidence to eventually take over the reins of the organization. Now, the community donates a lot of money. Oh, my gosh. The community is wonderful. We could not do the work we do without the community. We absolutely could not. I don't know whether sometimes people realize the many opportunities for volunteering. Even all of our tree sweaters around town were made by volunteers and hung and are taken care of by volunteers. And volunteers work in every part of our agency, from our crisis line to our on-scene advocates who go to the hospital with somebody who's experienced domestic abuse or sexual assault, our youth program, our daycare, volunteers are in all parts of our organization, and there's actually volunteer hours available 24 hours a day. Middleway House has been around for nearly 50 years. 1971, I mm-hmm. believe it was mm-hmm. founded, and at that time it had a, it had a different purpose. I, I love the story about how Middleway House started. We started out as a crisis line, and it was a group of students who got together and they helped out with general crisis on the crisis line, and also venereal disease questions and things like that. But one of the favorite things is that there was a a bunch of them were chemistry students. What they would allow people to do is to bring in drugs, 71. There was a lot of drug usage. They would allow people to bring their drugs in. They would actually test the substances and give it back to them and let them decide whether or not they wanted to use it once they heard the information of what was in the drugs and what the drugs would do with them. so This is the junk that's in the junk. Yeah, (laughs) and to me, that is so much the same philosophy we operate with today. People come to us. Now, we don't want anybody bringing drugs to us, but people come to us. They give us their stuff, their emotional stuff, the stuff they're experiencing it, experiencing. We look at it, and we kind of, Give it back to them with resources and information and let them make their own decisions because everybody's an expert on their own life. So really what we're doing is the same thing. We're just letting them bring their problems to us, their relationship problems, their situations they're experiencing, and we give them back information and resources. We'll never tell anybody they have to leave an abusive relationship. We will never. We know that leaving you is You don't the, shake your finger. Oh, my gosh, no. We know that leaving is the most dangerous time. We know that the person that's telling us their story knows their abuser better than we do. And we also know that it takes seven to nine times before somebody is actually ready to leave an abuser. And we never want them to think, well, I can't go back to them. They told me to leave, and I didn't leave, and they're going to tell me, well, why didn't you do what we told you the first time? We don't ever want anybody to feel that way. In a way, what happened to you? You are so prepared for this job. I hope. (laughs) I hope so. It's a big job. There's huge shoes to fill. Huge shoes. You replaced? Toby Strout who was a legend in this town. Absolutely. You're hanging in there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The place is still going. Yeah, yeah. We have a great staff, amazing board, and yeah. Was there ever a moment when you took the job that you said, 
oh my God, what did I do? How could I have done this? Oh, there's lots of times. I'm probably, I'm like most people, I'm probably my worst critic. So there's lots of moments I'm like, oh my gosh. But you know, I know that a lot of people believe in me and have faith in me. And so those moments, I remember that and I keep going, you know. I mean, there's a great board that we're working with. We're doing a great strategic plan for the next three years. And and that's coming up. There will be a new strategic plan coming up January? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've worked very hard on that with Beth Applegate, great uh-huh. community member and wonderful partner for us. You have to work hand-in-hand in, hand in a lot of ways with hospitals, mm-hmm. with the police, mm-hmm. with the sheriff. Mm-hmm. All these people are willing helpers, partners. Yeah, we try to maintain good working relationships with all of them. It's in the best interest of the survivors. We want to make sure that every option is available for every survivor that comes to us. So having good relationships with all of these different agencies are important. And what I find is all of them are very interested in helping survivors of domestic violence. Janae Cummings is the chair of the board of directors as well as head of marketing for Bloomington Pride. She appeared on Big Talk in January of this year. Bloomington Pride was born of the volunteers and activists who staged this town's Pride Film Festival. In existence as a nonprofit since 2013, Bloomington Pride serves the LGBTQ plus people of Bloomington and South Central Indiana, sponsoring arts and entertainment events, educational programming, advocacy, and the establishment of safe and inclusive spaces. Janae was born and raised in Anderson, Indiana. My father was a cop. And uh-huh. uh, det- he was a homicide detective. And my, Where? My, which, which town? Uh, Anderson. In Anderson. And okay. my mother was also a police officer um, for a time. He was a homicide detective. He was. Did he bring home stories? Yeah. He did? Well, I mean, it was homicide, major crimes, I guess yeah, you would yeah. call it. You know, robberies, um, sexual assaults. They could make assaults. a TV show about it. <laughs> he has uh, oh, God, we're talking about my father. He actually <laughs> was on Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, like his life story. Um, he's got a great life story. Um that has been attractive to, I think, uh, media people from time to time. So, I also notice law school is involved. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a law school dropout, so we don't have to ah. <laughs> My father, who he was, um, he put himself uh, through law school night going at night um, and eventually became uh, the prosecutor where I grew up. And so, you know, he's telling me, like, you've got you've to go to law school because I was like, I want to be a writer. And he goes, you'll starve to death. No one's actually a writer. You need to go to law school <laughs> and have an actual career. Um, I did that. I dropped out of law school and magically became a writer. So <laughs> do, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, it's interesting. You had this quote where you say, I didn't see anybody quite like me on the board. Right. Is it because it is Bloomington and Bloomington is really not very diverse? It is that. Um, is I, Anderson diverse? It is, actually. I mean, Anderson is a blue collar. It's a dying factory town. And yeah, so yeah. there is there is a large inner city um, with poor black people and poor white people. But, I mean, it's a town that used to have Delco and, and, yeah. and GM. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of diversity there. Um, not economic diversity, but certainly racial diversity. Oh. And so... 
you know, but it was also the kind of town where we lived. We lived kind of on the outskirts on one side of town. And um, I remember going to junior high and I'd never really been around other black kids before. Oh. Other, other than my family, I'd never really played. Because I, I didn't, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. Oh. Um, and so I remember going to junior high and meeting other black kids there who I was bullied relentlessly because I talked white and I had white friends. And and so it was a culture shock for me in sure. a way that I think most people do not experience. I know there are plenty of other black people and people of color who maybe grew up in an all-white environment or maybe they're adopted or something else. And then they start meeting, they start meeting people um, who are not from their economic circumstances. And it's, it's a, it's a blow. It's a serious, yeah. it's a serious thing. And so um, that was my first experience, I think, with actual diversity, and I didn't understand it. And, you know, as I grew up, and we eventually moved to the other side of town, interestingly, um, and we're closer, kind of in closer proximity um, to the inner city. But, um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, and gotten out of town and that kind of thing. There have been times when I've been upset with my parents for not, not preparing me. You know, they sheltered me and they kept me from a lot of things. Um, intentionally, intentionally sheltered? trying to protect me, yeah, I think. Yeah. And so, and that applies to things with race. Um, there are plenty, plenty of racist incidents in my youth where I didn't quite realize they were happening because my parents were keeping me from them. I remember I was playing. You know, I played basketball and tennis uh, simultaneously for a number of years. And so I was in a basketball league and um, some parents wanted to know what school I went to because they were trying to figure out where I lived and if I was actually eligible to play in this league. Um, so there were little things like that where I didn't understand what was going on. And now I know. And um, my parents are very good about that. But also, I think sometimes no matter no matter your circumstances, your race or otherwise, um, when you shelter your kids too much, I think life can hit them pretty hard. Have you um, had these discussions? We are starting to have more of them, uh -huh. I think, because I think I'm a lot more aware of these things now than I was even 10 years ago yeah. and able to communicate my feelings about them and understand them a bit better. Um, I guess that's what being in your 30s does. I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I have a lot more clarity about these things. I understand them a, bit, a lot better. And I, can, I think we can have the conversations we need to. And it's productive. Finally, we met Courtney Payne Taylor on Big Talk two weeks ago. She didn't know what to do with her life and had been experiencing depression because of it. One day she found herself at Upper Cascades Park where a visiting pro taught her how to ride a skateboard. She's been hooked ever since. She derived pleasure and satisfaction from riding and wanted to bring the same to girls and women far and wide. She started GROW, Girls Riders Organization, hoping to share the lessons of skateboarding as a metaphor for success in life. When I go to the GROW website, the thing that really catches my eye, four big lessons. Can I name the first one? Yes, please. All right. There is a place for you, and you deserve to be there as much as anyone else. Why is that number one? Again, I think there's just like someone coming up to a skate park, seeing all these advanced skaters and believing that you would be in their way. You're not welcome there because you're not good enough to be there. Well, they all got good by being there. And I think everything in life, whether especially with women going into careers that are traditionally male dominated, 
we need to know that everyone has equal rights to be there. Don't be afraid to step into a field because you seem like the only one or part of the minority. Everybody has a right to do everything in life, whether it's being in a location or whether it's being in a career or whether it's a certain passion. I think we have to stop limiting ourselves before we even take that first step. Do you think that a woman in today's world has to be tougher than a man? We don't need to be anything other than who we are. We need to create our own world within the world. I think in the beginning of skateboarding, girls all looked like boys. They dressed like the boys, they cut their hair like the boys, they tried to fit in with the boys. But girls skateboarding didn't start growing until girls started being girls on skateboards oh. and letting the world of girls skateboarding start growing. And I think that's that's what matters. We don't need to fit into the mold that's been there. We need to help develop our own space. So what are some of the visual cues? Would it be fashion? Would it be colors? Would it be different looks of the skateboard that would distinguish uh, girls from boys? There's, I mean, again, you can be whoever you want. So we have, there's a group out in California called the Pink Helmet Posse. And these girls have some videos where they start doing manicures on their nails, and then they go skate. They'll wear tutus, they wear dresses. I mean, you can be whoever you want. You don't have to be a girl or dress like a girl or act like a girl. You be whoever you want to be, and you can still be a skateboarder. Lesson number two. First, observe what is happening, and then find your place to begin. When a girl shows up at a skate park and there's all these skaters there, she says, I can't get in there. I teach them, watch for a minute, because you're going to see these skateboarders, they're repetitive. They are going to do the same thing over and over. And if you watch for a few minutes, you're going to find there's one place in the park no one else is, and that's your place. Go start there. Now, you have a problem because you're a girl and you're skateboarding, which makes you cool. So you're going to notice they're going to flock to that spot that you're <laughs> at. But as they flock to that spot, they're leaving other spots open. So you always can find your place to get started. You don't have to always start in the mainstream. Lesson number three, pay attention to the changes and always be ready to move on to the next place. In skateboarding, as you're if you're going to go down a hill or you're going to go up a hill, you're going to go off the sidewalk into the street, you always need to be aware. I think when we get into a pattern of doing the same thing every day and the same thought processes every day. We're always going to continue on this path and then life changes. And if you're not paying attention to that, it's going to end up hurting you. Lesson number four. Two words. Help others. Helping others, I think, is, is so important. I mean, we... When people help us, they change our lives and we can turn around and do that for other people. And Grow, we always not only teach girls to skate, but we teach girls the tools they need to help someone else learn that as well. When we all help one another, I mean, everything just goes better. And I, it's not just girls helping girls or guys helping guys. This goes across, I mean, I've had people help me that would never be expected, you know, mm. much older men in the industry yeah. that helped me out that they had no reason to. I was some young girl. Why did they help me? Well, I don't know why, but their helping me made such a big difference. I think, again, it goes, it's all about that community. We live in a better community when we live in a community that helps one another. I hope these stories have inspired you to go out and do some good work for the community and for the world. Look around. See which organizations might fit your passion or start your own group. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.